Here is David Littlejohn with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, it's that time of the week. It's the best Tuesday you've had all week, and we are stoked to bring to you the True Wealth Radio Show. I'm your host, Dave Littlejohn. Joining me in studio, Matt Dixon. All right, Matt. Okay. What's on your mind? Well, I know that the 30-year mortgage was up to like 6.875% the last Wait time I checked. Wait a second. This is the same 30-year mortgage that at the end of 2022 was like four and a quarter or something? Yeah. So that's it, like a 50% increase in the cost of a mortgage. It's insane. All right. So we just shut the program down right now and just say it's all going to collapse, right? Well, it's over... I think a lot of people might say that, but I don't know that we should jump the gun, should we? (laughs) Well, I I mean, we've been higher than that before, right? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, we have. I mean, I remember back around 05, got got a mortgage when I moved to town and and purchased my first home in Douglas County Mm -hmm. and uh, thought 6% was pretty solid. Okay. And my folks were like, yeah, I mean, shoot, 8% looked pretty good a couple of years ago. You got 6 And then it proceeded to drop below 3 at one point, and you know, the bottom falls out of the market. We were structurally trapped and couldn't refinance or anything. And I remember then being bitter about 6% being so high. Yeah. And here we are back to over 6%. Oh, my goodness. We were spoiled there for a while, right? Like, we have We been. were seeing a lot of, like, you know, in the mid twos on a on a few mortgages there for a little bit, and then it went up into the threes, mm-hmm. and everyone was still happy. And then yeah. all of a sudden, boom! Almost overnight, yeah. we're... we have been really, really spoiled for a really long time. Um, considering that two thousand five, the mortgage rates so mortgage rates went down after two thousand eight, and they stayed down. So that's been almost fourteen years mm-hmm. of. Really cheap Super money. Super cheap money. Yeah. And now it is like Pandora's box has been open. The rates are on the rise. I looked up a statistic for our listeners before the show started. And, okay. it, and this is just kind of crazy to think about. But on a 30-year loan, if you loan out at 4.65%, that, that ends up being 60% of the money over the course of the loan goes towards interest payments. Wow. Yeah, so over half your money on a 30-year loan, 4.65% is going just towards interest. Right. And so now we're looking, you know, at 6.8 and I'm like, wow. Yeah, th- that's- so this is it's it's really interesting. There's a number of dynamics at play in housing. Uh, my sense is that we have to look at two different variables at the same time though. Okay. Right? So the first one is the cost of the mortgage now is like, well, how much can you borrow? But then we also have to look at the the idea of wage inflation and are we seeing wages rise? Is it keeping pace with that right. change? My inflation? sense is probably not, right? Because if you sure. just do the math straight across the board, it now a 50% increase in interest cost doesn't mean a 50% increase in mortgage payment. So here's That's what I mean, true. right? Going from 4% to 6% on your mortgage doesn't mean your payment went from $1,000 a month to 1500 a month, mm-hmm. right? That's not how that translates. But it does mean the cost of capital is higher. So your $1,000 a month mortgage may have gone up to 1300 a month mm-hmm. or something like that. And that is a material shift, right? right? So... You, then you look at it and say, well, did you get a pay raise that was enough to keep doing that? 
but there's there's more to it than even that, isn't there? Ooh, wow, we're really starting to unravel things. Okay. Well, if you consider that you're competing, so let's let's think about. All of us have to think this way as a consumer, right? Mm-hmm. All the stuff out there in the world, we have two major things or two major categories competing for your wallet. Okay, needs. And my wife. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I hope that she didn't hear that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Needs are the ones that you don't really get a choice, right? Needs compete for your wallet. And what you do with needs is you try to manage them. And sometimes you substitute. Like you need Mm -hmm. food. Right. But maybe you're substituting for a lesser cost or quality in some cases of food and you hope it's not a quality sacrifice but you can i mean this is the old expression of like if you can't afford steak then you're getting ground beef and if you can't do ground beef maybe you're going to chicken if you can't go to chicken you're going to rice and beans it gets much worse though people are going to start pulling smallmouth bass out of the umpqua and start eating on cheap fish you know Maybe that is part of the scheme. Like we right? just need to get rid of the invasive species. So yeah. I'll just go catch them. There you go. <laughs> and there's a snack. Uh, you know, the real trick is, can you make them tasty? I don't know. <laughs> People claim that they can, but I haven't been willing to try it yet. Yeah, you're you know, Matt. By the way, if if those of you listening don't know this, here's an interesting piece of trivia about Matt. I think he'd rather be fishing than almost anything else. I think. You know, sleep and food compete with it, Mm -hmm. but he's willing to give up the sleep for the fishing. It's true, but I don't like to eat the fish that I catch. That's the weird part, right? It's like loves to go fishing, doesn't loves to catch the fish, doesn't do anything with the fish other than give it away if it's Mm -hmm. a fish that other people will eat or put the fish back in the water and be like, great, let's see if I can catch you again, fish. We've done that before. This this year, fish, yeah, this yeah. year we did. We managed to catch the same fish like two days later. At which point you're like, "Come on, dude! You didn't learn the first time, right?" So, uh, anyway, it's well. The water is clearly cloudy and murky down there. Yep. So, anyhow, that's the little side note about Matt. But Matt, nevertheless, yeah. wants needs, right? Okay. So the needs we got to eat. We have the basics, the bottom of the pyramid of Maslow's hierarchy. Ooh. We heard that term before everybody, yep. right? It's a psychologist that said, hey, you know, here's the way we, so we start with, you need like food and shelter, like basic sec- personal security before you can move into like the next level of more self-fulfillment. And then you get into wants, needs, self-actualization and so mm-hmm. forth. So the bottom of the pyramid but you know what? First of all, if you run out of money before you've secured the bottom of the pyramid, life is very hard. Right? I mean, it's oh, like yeah. it's very hard. And here's I, I will tell you that I am not without compassion when I say this because the world is getting complicated to navigate. Right? Because we've created so many tools that will do jobs that people used to do mm-hmm. that were the entry level jobs. Right. You talk yeah. about, you know, there used to be the joke like, oh, you can hire anybody to flip hamburgers. You don't have to. The robot can do it. 
I right? mean, you yeah, don't, we're seeing you that don't everywhere. need a hamburger flipper anymore. You have other things that can do that. Mm-hmm. They have technology that's now figured out like burger on a conveyor belt that cooks for a certain amount of time, flips it over, cooks the other side, and off the other end it rolls to make a sandwich. When you go to the store and you're checking out and you have the option to go to a cashier and have them check your stuff out or do the self-checkout, where, which direction do you typically head? Depends on how much I have. Oh, Okay. Right. If there's a few items, I go wherever it's fastest. Okay. Because but if it you have a ton of items, you don't want to do it yourself. It's, yeah, oftentimes it's because if you have a ton of items, mm-hmm. they're set up to manage a ton of items better. Yeah. Try to take a ton of items and go into an area where you've got something the size of a notebook to try to pack all your groceries into. Yep. It doesn't really work. Okay. Right. So I'd rather just say, well, I'm scanning these across. We're going to put them in bags on your little carousel. And when we're done, I'll load them up and get out of there. Yeah. So it is a volume consideration uh, as well as a you know, time consideration. I don't look at it the way some – I mean, I know there's some people out there that say, well, you know what? I'm not going to – you know, I'm not getting paid to bag my own groceries. Somebody's there for that. So I'm – you know, that's what they should do. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the flip side of it, which is I don't want anybody else touching my stuff. So I'm – you know, it's – it's wrapped. It's, I mean, I'm so not. So you don't take a necessarily hard line in either direction. No, I, but you're, what you're going to discover is I rarely take a hard line on any of these things because there are different reasons that these things appeal or don't appeal. Mm-hmm. And like to the person that's insistent, like it's not my job to bag the groceries. I look at that and go, yeah, but what if your groceries were two percent cheaper? Is it your job now? Hmm. Yeah, that's right. A good and, and and because because your person drawing that hard lines, like, do you really have any idea what the operational expenses underneath the hood of that business are? I mean, people have no idea what mar like what kind of margins Walmart has. Mm-hmm. Right? They're just like, well, super mega corporate, and there's people that are super rich because of Walmart, so they suck. <laughs> and I'm like, hold your hold the phone for a second. I mean. Walmart's a company that went public, and the people that originally started Walmart had shares in that, and so they have ownership in a company that's now got gigantic footprint all over the globe and does mass, mass, mass retail. So tons of money moves through Walmart, and a little piece of a ton of stuff ends up being a lot. But how much margin on that macaroni and cheese do they make? Mm-hmm. You know, Is it five cents? And you're like, right. well, for that five cents, I should get spoiled. And I'm like, guess what? If somebody told you to spoil them for five cents, you tell them to pound sand. Yep. So there's a lot of people yep. with a double standard because it's like, well, I'm just hiding behind my lack of knowledge about how it operates. You know, and so I have this sort of, you know, high and mighty position, if you will. I'm like, well, we don't know what we don't know. That's fair. That's fair. Anyway. How do you so, get me off on the rails on You know, that? I'm pretty good at that. I'm pretty good at that. That's what I'm here for, to <laughs> no, just no, put no, us in the weeds. It's so ridiculous. It's not like I'm shy in opinion on these things, but I'm just less hardline than I used okay, to be. I'm, I'm going to do better. Uh, let's, let's get back into what we were talking about. So we were talking about how interest rates are on the rise and yes. mortgages are more expensive. And now... Do, you and if your wallet hasn't grown, right? It's a way uh-huh. of saying if you're not getting paid more, but but essentials in your life cost more, you have to start making substitution decisions. That's a squeeze on the consumer, right? Mm-hmm. The loss of purchasing power because inflation is outpacing your paycheck growth. That's a dangerous spot for the consumer to be in. Well, and business profits too. Business profits are changing as well. 
Business profits are definitely changing, but you know, that's one of those where again, I don't have a lot of, I don't have full transparency on what the profits are. How many companies are raising prices because their input costs are going up and they have to to survive versus they're opportunistic because they're saying, well, you know, with inflation everywhere, we can get away with this and improve our margins. Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that, but my suspicion is both are occurring. Ooh. Right? I just don't know where. And and it'll take a little while for that to shake out before the data catches up to be able to tell us. Right. And well, in certain sectors can price adjust more rapidly than others. And that plays a huge effect right. as well. And and even like how does one compartmentalize businesses that have different units? Like if you look at big pharma mm-hmm. and you go, my gosh, how can you charge $40,000 a month for this cancer drug? Mm-hmm. Right. And especially when you're making you know billions of dollars and so you're just gouging people that are desperate and i'm not going to lie when i say it sure seems that way mm-hmm. uh, but you know then the the company will turn around and go do you have any idea how many millions of dollars we had to spend to develop this drug to do what it does to to go through the fda process and deal with all the different layers of bureaucracy to get it to market in the first place we are so deep in the hole on this thing we've got to recover money Whoa, somehow. yeah and can you imagine the liability insurance those companies have to carry well, that's a separate issue right yeah. because once it clears the fda there's my understanding is there's different rules about liability associated hmm. there but nevertheless if you consider like hey if a company spends $250 million to develop a drug that is only going to be given to 10,000 total people, what's the cost per person? I mean, is it $25,000 per person to right. recover that sunk cost? And if you're saying, yeah, but they make a ton of money on the drugs that they've had forever that, you know, they're selling the heart meds or something to everybody and they're making $5 on everybody. So they're making like $2 billion over there. Okay, you're right. But what company motivated by profit says, well, yeah, I'm willing to make this other thing an altruistic loss leader and cannibalize my profits on the one that's making me money, mm-hmm. right? And now you're like, well, where where do you draw the line of, well, how would you incentivize a company to even develop a drug that they can't profitably make? Yeah. So then the person that is getting a forty twenty thousand or forty thousand dollar cancer treatment is like, or it's just not there at all. And I'm like, I, it, you know, it's not cut and dry. I think that's the issue. It's true. So, anyway, yeah. Thanks for another journey into the weeds, Matt. Mm-hmm. You know, we got to we got to take a break. Uh, so we'll do that. I'll run home. I'll yep. get the weed whacker. We'll okay. come back. We'll do that. And when we come back, we'll talk about other fun stuff. But uh, we'll do this first. So stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. Yeah. I mean, like at some point, we're going to do a program on like the whole NFT crypto space and hell. All right. Anyway, so we're back. So, oh, hey, welcome okay. back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn in the studio with Matt All right. And we did uh, mention uh, that'll come back later. I've I am on a study quest mm. uh, around crypto. And like I've gone from, hey, this is novel to uh, understanding use cases, understanding abuse cases mm-hmm. more so. Right. And so I'm going through that learning curve of use and abuse, how how it functions, what it does. And it has really 
made things interesting all of a sudden to me, looking at the potential pathways into the future and how these, what the use cases for this technology might be. Yeah. So, uh, and and why is this relevant to you as a listener? Because, you know, we were just talking about interest rates and uh, I guess I could make a really hard pivot and say, uh, it's really interesting to see that the world as we've known it for like the last 15 years is likely to be changing, right? Yeah. And, and I think values and valuations are shifting a lot right now or can potentially shift a lot. So uh, can you give me an example kind of what you're talking about? Well, real estate's the first one. Okay. Right. I mean, if you think about higher rates, Mm -hmm. what's that do to real estate changes people's ability to borrow. Right. Right. And so it it changes the amount of money available to chase this asset. Mm -hmm. But now let's think about, so all of you out there investing right now, here's the silly question. Would you rather loan somebody money for low interest or high interest? Man, I hope everyone said high interest. Yeah. I mean, if it's not in like what we will call an altruistic loan, like if you're not doing this because you're just, this is like when your parents and you say like, you know, I really want to help my kid buy a house. And so I'm just going to like give them a really favorable deal that doesn't work well for you, but you're just taking care of your kid, right? It's a sweetheart deal. Well, okay. But that doesn't count as investing. That counts as you helping somebody else out. You're investing in like making your heart feel full, mm-hmm. but not your wallet. That's right. Okay. But if you're seeking profit, then you go, well, no, I want the best interest rate I can get. Mm-hmm. And if you're borrowing money, you want the opposite, right? Hey, I want to pay as little as possible. Okay. Enter the bond market. Ooh. Okay. We haven't talked about bonds in a long time. We really haven't, and it's super relevant. Um, for everybody listening, uh, I'm just going to give you a brief insight into our firm. Okay, Now, we don't talk about Little John Financial a lot on this program. We and really that's okay. don't. That, that's okay. This is more intended as education, entertainment, and... Uh, sort of a resource to get your get the wheels turning, get the creativity turning around finance, and just to 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 give you a chance to maybe explore some other ideas and learn a little bit. Well, our firm we we do manage investment assets for customers, right? So we've got everything from retirement plans to we've got some endowment type funds, and and our we have our own methodology that we utilize, and so it's a sort of a semi-active and tactical approach to investing. It's not uh, indexing. It's not uh, a hands-off approach. We're, we're fairly engaged with what we do. And so we have a regular committee meetings where we, we get together, we're looking at a, a lot of different data points, and then making decisions about the market. And I can tell you, and, and, and let me just preface this by saying this don't construe what I'm about to share with you as investment advice or a recommendation okay that's not what what I'm about to do but I'm going to tell you some insight into what our committee was discussing recently and for the past two or three years we have been very sour on the bond market Mm -hmm. right I mean just just sour on it it's not that we would completely refuse to engage in it we did have some fixed income holdings that were really short duration. They were sort of like alternatives to money market, mm-hmm. but they were just really, because there's, I will use the phrase, not much meat on the bone, right? And what I mean is not worth doing for the amount of risk that you're taking for the returns that you get. Like, like it was a big pile of who cares. I could leave the money in a bank and 
pretty much have about the same result without having my principal fluctuate much. Right. So bonds didn't make a lot of academic sense to us for quite some time. So we did other things to create bond-like behavior in our investment strategies. Mm-hmm. And we used some derivatives, some alternative asset classes. We did a lot of correlation study and making sure we were owning things that sort of behaved cooperatively with each other. So you have to like, you know, position A and position B, and they don't run in the same direction at the same time, right? It doesn't mean a they're beta. inverse yeah. to each other. Like one goes up, the other goes down. We weren't trying to hedge. We were trying to make them very, very independent of each other so that if one was moving, it wasn't influencing the other. So we spent a lot of academic time working on getting that to a spot where we were trying to insulate and reduce risk using sort of, we'll call them investment structuring techniques. Mm -hmm. And this morning, we looked at the, the, you know, 30-year bonds, 30-year mortgages up now close to 7%. And we're starting to look at the yield curve on bonds and going, you know, the interest rates that you're starting to see, the yield in in the bond market is starting to look more investable. Mm -hmm. Why? And, you know, it's the Fed's allowing rates to rise. So if rates go up, if you don't recall this, bonds are a teeter-totter, right? So what happens, Matt? If rates go up, then bond prices go down. Yeah. Now, Bond prices, the longer it takes for your bond to mature, because remember, a bond is a loan, right. and you're they're loaning sell- it for a period of time, They're right? selling at a discount if the interest yeah. rates and go so, up because like, they if, got offloaded. If you loan the money out for 10 years and interest rates change, and you got 10 years before you're going to get paid back, and you needed to sell that bond to somebody else, it's going to be pretty interest rate sensitive, potentially, because mm-hmm. you're like, well, shoot, the rates changed. If the rates go up, nobody wants to buy my bond at full price anymore because they mm-hmm. had to wait 10 years to get their principal back. Right. So you, your bond price would be discounted. Now, if your interest, if your bond's going to mature in a week, it's not going to be that interest rate sensitive because, you know, in 10 days or whatever, I get my money back. Right. So, so we care about the duration or interest rate sensitivity of bonds. And with interest rates on the rise, on purpose, Federal Reserve setting policy and the Federal Reserve not buying anymore, which means there's nobody willing to overpay for the bonds. The people left buying bonds don't want to spend as much because they don't want to tie their money up long term for no return. Mm-hmm. So the rates go down. Or I'm sorry, the rates go up and the price of the bond falls. Yep. And now we're talking to committee level saying, hey, is at what point do we start dipping our toe in the water of the fixed income marketplace? Right? I mean, how many of our listeners, if you think back, do you guys remember like late 70s, early 80s? And treasury bonds, like 30-year bonds, pay an 18%. That's wild. Imagine if you could lock in 18% returns on fixed income accounts. Mm-hmm. Now, if inflation was running at 25%, you'd still be losing money. And it begs the question, what is inflation really running at? I know. and it's Because they can tell us whatever they want. But is that accurate to... Well, and it depends... You know, I don't even know that they are hiding the data. Right. I think what they've done is they've decided, well, we're going to report it in this way, mm-hmm. which is different than we used to report it. And so you have to go Change the searching yeah. for the different data points to get a more composite view of inflation. I can tell you, inflation in some areas of the economy is running close to 
Mm-hmm. I mean, like outrageous inflation rates. Right. Um, I saw a t- like not a very fun article about um, Roseburg specifically, where we live. And if you're listening to this, I, we do have listeners uh, across the country and across the globe now. Yep. If you're listening to this. And you're thinking, so our market had sort of the dubious distinction, our domestic real estate market, of showing up on, it was like a Yahoo Finance article or something, okay. but it basically falls in the top, like top 10 for markets that are appreciating at such a rate that they're going to become uninvestable for the people that live there, right? Wow. The properties get so expensive that the job market won't allow a person living in that community to afford to live there. So an influx of money from other areas that can afford it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of my theory is that, and and this is not to bash on people that are moving to town, but as an example, well, here, I'll I'll give you, all right, we got to take a break because we're at that time, right? Ah. So when we come back, I want to give you the example, like what is driving real estate prices, at least my theory? Mm. And then you'll be like, oh, yeah. And then we'll grumble and then we'll talk about, well, how might we, you know, fix it? But we got to take a break. So stick around. We'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn and Matt Dixon. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. There's the more music. Cool. All right. Hey, we're back. We got sound Um, effects. I know, right? Uh, So welcome back to. The True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Little, John in studio with Matt Dixon. Yep, and we are. We were talking about Californians, we're, right? Well, no, we were, <laughs> you're going to talk about California, I guess. Uh, we're talking about how um, Roseburg is on a list. So Yahoo Finance article that showed up, and it, the list was basically what are uh, communities that in the next ten years houses aren't going to be affordable anymore. Mm-hmm. So, and Roseburg's on the list. Right? That's pretty and, impressive. And we in fact, it. it was like one or two on the list. I'm gonna, I'm just gonna Google this real quick. Watch this. So okay. let's see, like um, communities. What do you, what should you call it? Where I really hope you can hear aren't, the uh, key. Spell it right. Yeah. Aren't affordable in ten years. This is actually happening. Googling right, it in right studio. Here. The keys are going. And now I don't see the. Uh, oh, that's it was a, a letdown Yahoo article. I know what a letdown. But because uh, a buddy of mine sent it, but anyway. Um, yeah, what city has the least affordable housing? China. <laughs> San Jose, California is number four on the list, though. Really? So, but we made the list of uh, communities that are pricing everybody out, and I wanted to talk about why. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, why, why would that happen? And, and then what might we be able to do? Uh, and it's going to be a tricky one, okay. but we can play this game, right? We're all friends here. So, first of all, I'm not picking on people that move to this community. Right. Think about why. It's because this community is really attractive to a certain type it's of awesome. person. Right? Look at the weather. I mean, the area's got multiple rivers. It's yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's it's great. So here's the thing. When considering the the housing market, Oregon has some you you know, fairly aggressive land use restrictions. Okay. Okay. And so uh, different areas of the state, the land is zoned for specific things, so you can only do certain things with the land based on the zoning. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a permitting process and a bunch of other elements. So what what it does is it makes it more expensive and more difficult to build homes, residential property in many areas. And so you end up with a scenario where you restrict the supply of available housing because of these 
this, this is an example when people say, oh, you know, regulations make things cost more. It's like, well, it does. Like if you have an, a reduction in the supply of available land to build homes on, and then you have bottlenecks where price and availability also affect the ability to get permitting to mm-hmm. do things, then it will mean fewer houses are able to be built and it will cost more to build them. Right. Can you imagine if there weren't any? Like, just build a house wherever you want. You own the land, do what you want with it. And there's there's a lot more flexibility in some regions of the country Texas, than others. Texas, yeah. for example. There, there's a lot fewer land use restrictions. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not arguing whether that's good, bad, or otherwise, but I am telling you that it contributes to some significant factors where you can't just say, well, we need more affordable housing, plunk them down, right? Because... The process of doing it is expensive, right? And the mm-hmm. raw materials right now are expensive. So just do the basic math on this. If an affordable home can be built, and I'm going to say this is below market. Like, I don't even think you can do this. But for $150 a square foot, mm-hmm. and you build a 1,000-square-foot place, that's $150,000. Mm-hmm. And we haven't bought any dirt yet, right? So find me a place where you can plunk a $150,000 house down. It's probably $50,000 worth of dirt, too. Now we're so at two. you're at least $200,000 for a thousand square foot, like two bedroom, one bath, or maybe a three bedroom, one bath place. And you're like crammed into it. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you do a more typical, say 1500 square foot, three bedroom, two bath, this is a small house too, on a very small parcel. You're still talking about now, not a thousand square feet for 150, but you've added 50% to the price. So it's a $225,000. Mm-hmm. Plus the land of fifty, you're at two hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. What part of that is affordable, especially at six point eight seven percent rate? Right. So, what happens is we have a limited supply. It's very expensive to build, and there's no incentive for builders to build low-end homes because there's no margin in it. Like at one hundred and fifty dollars right. a square foot, they basically break even. So build for two hundred dollars a square foot so that you can make some profits as the builder mm-hmm. and but now you've taken the house and you've increased it by another 35 percent right so it's not 275 anymore you're going to tack on another almost 100 grand so it's like 360 or so okay we've again we've lost we're off the the pattern of affordable already and it's because the builders need to be able to do this at a profit as well mm-hmm. and now you still have scarcity and people competing for those homes. And somebody with a million-dollar home in California says, I'm out of here. I want to be done. They sell their million-dollar house, and they move up here, and they say, I have to compete for this home. It's $360,000, but I'm going to bid 400000 for it so I can make sure and get it. Yep. And now all the comps in the area are at 400000 And it's even more unaffordable. So... Now, the person that moved up here from California or wherever that had this expensive home, they still have $600,000 in their pocket, assuming that their taxes and other elements mm-hmm. are kind of a push, uh, which they wouldn't be completely. But So so let's say they got 500000 in their pocket. They have their house paid for free and clear. They have 5000 in their pocket. And now through Social Security, retirement plans, and basic pensions, they can afford to live here. Yep. But all the people that need to provide the services and work here Unless you're at a very, like, now you go, okay, well, our surgeons and physicians and folks that can make six figures a year, they can afford to go buy a house because of the money that they earn. Mm-hmm. But what about the people that are in our service community that are making $15 an hour? 
Yeah, where right? are they going to afford to live? So now minimum wage, it's like it, it just can't be affordable. Mm-hmm. It can't be. And so then, so everybody goes, well, then you better raise the minimum wage. Okay, well, that doesn't fix it because it changes the input cost to everything else. It's the same thing that makes houses cost more. Yep. Cost more to build them because it costs more for the labor in them, too. Well, that doesn't fix it. So how do you fix the, the, the challenge of folks coming in and bidding things way up? And, and there's only a handful of levers to pull left, right? You can try to increase the supply of available housing. Okay. Changing the regulations. You can, you can change the regulations or the land use. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people that are probably pounding the desk right now saying, well, if we didn't have the same restrictions on, for example, harvesting timber on federal lands, yeah, then that would certainly give us the ability to lower the cost of lumber because mm-hmm. the supply would change. Now, whether that's good or not, I mean, timber companies may say, well, you know, I kind of like the margins right now, <laughs> right? Because the reality is it's not always like this. It's and true. I will tell you, it won't always be like this. We are watching the markets change sort of a slow motion train crash right now. Yeah. Like, I don't know how long it takes, but, you know, we're going to reach unsustainability quick because incomes, personal incomes can't keep up with the cost of living right now. And businesses can't just keep marking everything up to infinity there is an uncle point at which it breaks and we go into recession. And then that demand destruction that everybody loves that high demand for business right now, but demand destruction, when people just stop buying houses because we give up, we're just going to all, because uh, here's another solution, right? People just start bunking up, right? Get mm-hmm. roommates, more, more people, higher density. This has happened in many countries throughout history where families start sharing homes. Because there's economies of scale. It's a cultural shift, but it's not beyond possible in this country. Oh, right? I think be, we're starting to see it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Could just become a reality. More people start converting the garage. Yep. yep. So that's another. So change the supply. You can change the culture. You can also change the industry, right? Invite money from out of area that doesn't have to live here. Okay. This is tourism or other industry that's an exporter right you know who does this great who china ah right i mean hey go ahead send us your raw materials we'll send you back the stuff Mm -hmm. and you can buy the stuff from us and 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 they get more money from us than we get from them it's a trade imbalance right 100 percent. so roseburg could work on that now that doesn't solve our problem nationally just solves the local problem as well and change the inflow outflow so that people locally there are more high paying jobs that give people the ability to afford things now it doesn't fix the service industry this is the hamptons problem by the way okay right the hamptons problem is years ago houses in the hamptons got so expensive that the people that worked there, like in the service industry, mm-hmm. you know that the whether it's housekeeping or you know restaurants and waiters and waitresses and chefs and all that, they couldn't, they couldn't afford, afford to live it. in the Hamptons, right. right? So they were commuting two, three hours from somewhere else to work in the Hamptons. So they're just going to have to get compensated. It just it raises the cost yeah. of everything, but there's a natural process to that too, right? If you raise the price enough it stops being attractive to people and then they leave and then the demand drops and then the demand structure creates local recession. 
And it, you know, you can have boom and bust in our country. If you don't believe it, go look at Detroit. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a recessionary environment when you go look at like the Bay Area or Silicon Valley and it exploded. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because one industry was rising while another one was falling. Right. Okay. So, you know, there are some things that can augment, but it still doesn't fix our service industry gap. Hmm. Now, there's probably another thing we could do. It's my least favorite thing. Wow. That's a pretty bold statement. The least favorite thing we could do. You know what it is? Take a break. Yep, I'll tell you after the <laughs> okay. break. Stick around and we'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 939 FM and 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the home stretch of the True Wealth Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio with Matt Dixon. And if you're just getting caught up, here's the story. It's going to be on podcast. Check it out tomorrow on our webpage at littlejohnfs.com under the Educate tab, and you can get hooked up and Listen to these until your heart is content. They go way back in time. I don't even know if they got better or not, though. Hmm. But I do know this, okay? We were talking about the break, and there's one other solution to when housing prices get all wacky and out of control, and it's my least favorite solution. So it means I don't really know that it's a solution. It's just it changes things. Well, yeah, what it is is manipulation, Mm -hmm. and that just creates other problems. And I'm just going to say it, right? Like you can't what type of cheat a market. Well, you can supplement or subsidize. Ooh. Right? This is things like when government installs affordable housing, mm-hmm. okay? Which is effectively saying, well, if you don't earn enough money, you can live here so that you can then, in the Hamptons, right? So you can afford to live here and do the jobs that support all of the other people that make lots of money. Hmm. And my my impression of that is it sort of creates a caste system. Never liked it that much. Ah. Uh, and, you know, the other thing that you could do is if you want to bring down the cost of housing in general, you could create some kind of subsidies for some of the costs to get a home started. You could do that through tax incentives, mm-hmm. ownership incentives, and other things. And you could make those somewhat of a sliding scale. Now, this is a more progressive idea. It's not one that I, as a more traditional conservative capitalist, would buy into, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But the reality is that traditional capitalism is what is generating the imbalance of this market, like the local market here in Roseburg. People want to come here. They have money. They're willing to spend it. And so they vote with their dollars, and here they come. Yep. And then the question is, can it stay affordable to live here? Right. And maybe the answer is no. Uh, but it creates, you know, there's other issues that it creates, other structural issues with. Uh, and if, if you're listening and going, well, you said structural issue What the heck? I'm not talking about like, you know, like bridges and or a house framing or something. And oh, there's a stru-. when I say structural issues, I mean, it creates a problem where uh, one financial thing connects to another financial thing. And when you have a problem in one area, it makes the other areas have problems too because they're connected. So mm-hmm. uh, structural unemployment, like there's just not enough jobs and we have more people than jobs. Okay, well, it's a structural problem. You can't just employ everybody because there's more people than jobs. Right. Structural problem, right? So it's just a sort of a way to say that. Uh, and and so I, I worry that that's... That's kind of the direction that we're headed right now is that the incentive is we because of land use restrictions and so forth, we can't natively uh, just let the supply and demand float 
to fix the cost of housing, right? If we could just build more houses without the restrictions, then in theory, we could say, okay, well, then we'll just build until supply meets demand and the prices will start to drop again because there's supply-demand balance. But if we keep having the government put their finger on the scale through land use restriction, then somebody else is going to argue, again, which I don't agree with, but they'll say, well, then we need to put the thumb on the scale somewhere else through incentives or some kind of rebates to make it affordable for other groups. I'm like, so two wrongs don't make right. It Mm -hmm. just means there's more unnatural markets taking place. (laughs) And I don't know that that really fixes it. It just means that it creates other imbalances for people to exploit, and then the government tries to go in and fix the new one. Like, well... Like keeping dough stuffed in a tube that's too small, right? You just you squish <laughs> harder here, and it spits out somewhere else. Like it's just not gonna all fit in there. So yep. kind of yeah. like a dog chasing its tail. Yeah. So you have to let the markets address the issue. Um, if you artificially go in there and mess with it for a season, you might be able to fix it, and maybe it even works temporarily, right? Maybe uh, you can say, well, if we temporarily intervene because we have a population lobe that's going to go away, right? You know, we, we have a big demographic push, but there's nothing behind to fill in the gap. And you're like, so for a little while, we're going to supplement because we know there's going to be a dip that follows, okay? Now we're getting into more Keynesian-style economic thinking about, like, you know, during the peaks, you bank the surplus. During the troughs, you spend it, try to balance it out, and government can, you know, put a finger on the scale to do that. But again... When possible, my preference is the freest markets you can manage without harming others or creating monopolies Hmm. or oligopolies, right? So I want natural competition and lots of it to manage price. The the freer the market is, the happier I tend to be, recognizing that free-ish markets are about as close as we're going to get. Unnatural capitalism can also be its own challenge because... Not everybody's a good actor, right? Not everybody's an ethical capitalist. That's true. Right? Some people will exploit. And I'm like, well, what do we do with you if you're exploitative? Like, we, we got an issue. And so, and and for all of my listeners out there that are saying, well, yeah, no kidding. People will take advantage. Go, you're right. I'm not naive to that. So we have to have regulations to keep people from abusing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I could trust everybody to be more altruistic and, you know, Maybe we wouldn't have that same conversation. But you know what the world's taught me? Don't it, trust anyone. <laughs> tr- trust but verify, right? <laughs> trust but verify. And uh, it is what it is. Uh, so anyway, there's, there you go, right? I mean, rising interest rates, it will affect the housing market. It will change dynamics. I mean, locally, I think it will start to affect here. But that supply-demand imbalance is still pretty strained. I mean, how creative will you be to go get into a house if you want to? Well, yeah, you you're gonna have to pull some strings. Like, yeah. and you know, I got buddies in the lending industry. I'm sure they're just like, oh man, all of a sudden life got a lot more challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, for a while, it was refi, refi, refi. Oh um, yeah, but you know, the new home purchases prices are high. Uh, but I gotta believe that on the fringes and on the the upper end of the marketplace, like you're gonna start to see some pressure. Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember probably four or five years ago, you could count the number of seven-figure homes that sold in uh, this county on your fingers in right. a year. And now there are and a and you can't right now. There's yeah. more. There's a lot more high-dollar transactions. Some of that's because of the uh, inflation we've seen, and you know, the money printing and the COVID loans and PPP and just money everywhere. Yeah. Right. 
But some of it is also because interest rates were so low that you really could access a lot more money to chase after goods. And as that changes, I expect the economy to change too. Yeah. So what does it mean in the future? Well, lots of stuff, but it means that bonds may not be out of vogue forever. Right? And yeah. so I think that's the interesting one. So the marketplace say, could be changing. Yeah. Interest rates. Uh, and, and it also means for our stock investors out there, you may be in for a little more of a roller coaster, right? Mm-hmm. Long term inflation, the markets tend to adjust for inflation, right? Historically, the equity market has responded well and exceeded inflation historically, but it hasn't been without a wild ride. Absolutely. And so I'm just telling, and, and, and if you get into the real nuts and bolts of it, right, if, you're, if you were an analyst and you were looking at your formulas, one of the things you would say is, you know what, the cost of risk is changing, right? The cost to borrow money is going up because the risk of default is going up. That's a cost of risk calculation. That's true. It's going to change equities just like it's changing in bonds. So it will make its way into the system, and that's part of why we're seeing more volatility. So hang on. Put anyway, on your seatbelts. That is the music. It is time. How time flies. Matt, if they want to get more information, how can they reach us? They should give us a call, 541-375-0898, or then go to the website. Check us out. Listen to the podcast at littlejohnfs.com. All right, gang. So that's it. You heard it here first, but it won't be last. Thanks for tuning in. As always, this has been David Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you've been listening to True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. The preceding program was paid for by Little John Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.